So we're in a series titled, uh, that you may know, studying uh, in 1 John uh, and, and looking at that. This is our fifth week. And Pastor Tony in week one gave an amazing introduction to who wrote the book, why the book was written, and who it was written to. He really put the book in context. Week one, his message title was, The God Who's Always With You, Past, Present, Future. Week two was the reality of, of Jesus. Week three was, he talked about, do we have a, a possession or a profession of faith and the difference in that? And last week he brought uh, a message on the contrast of love. So Pastor Tony started chapter two, two weeks ago, and we're going to finish it up today. Uh, just as a, for an inf inf information sake, the church in Asia Minor had been wounded by a group that had turned out to be enemies of Christ. And for a while they blended in with the Christian community there in an attempt to really subvert it, to undermine the power and authority in the message that was going out. But apparently their true colors had been exposed and together they left that church community. I want to remind you this morning that in those days they didn't have the New Testament to go back and compare to like we do today. They had passages from the Old Testament, but um, they didn't have the advantage that, that we do have today. And John began chapter 2 with some terms of affection. He called those he was writing to little children, and then down in verse 7 he calls them beloved. Beloved is a term pertaining to one who is deeply loved, prized, and valued. And when you combine beloved and little children, you get a hint that John's heart goes out to his readers, that he loves them deeply. He had a pastor's heart. So we're going to back up and we're going to read from verse 17 uh, through 29. I'm going to read it in its entirety this morning and then we'll, we'll go through it uh, together. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of, the, of God abides forever. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming. So now men, many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have the knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is in the truth, is of the truth. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who desires the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If, you, if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you. And if you have no need, and you have no need that, you should, uh, that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches uh, you about everything and is true, there is no lie, just as it has been taught you abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him, and shame in his coming. 
If you know that he, is, that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So John opens up verse 18 and says, he says it's the last hour. And John frames his teaching and says that these end times are upon us. And it's evidenced by false teaching. Jesus had taught the perils of this time period when in Mark 13, 27, he said, for false Christ and many false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders and miracles to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. So in this passage, we'll explore some of the terms that John uses, and, it, and we'll see how he uses them. We'll consider the implications for our time. We'll take a look at the term the last days. We'll take a look at Antichrist. We'll take a look at anointing, and we'll take a look at abiding. Now, John is somewhere around 90 years old. I know we celebrated with Rich last, sun, last Sunday, his 90th birthday. John has seen it all, all right? He has seen departures many times throughout his life, departures from the church. He was there that day in Capernaum when Jesus shared the message in, in verse 66 of chapter 6, and John says, Jesus said, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And then verse 67, he looks at his disciples and he says to them, do you want to go away also as well? John knows what's going on. He's seen the departure of once professing Christians leaving Christianity. And unfortunately, you and I have seen that too. We've met people along the way that they seem like they were so connected to God. And all of a sudden, they've walked away. And what I've seen is when a person walks away like that, they usually go to a very far extreme the other way. Very dis disheartening. And here he, John sets out to comfort the church by giving them understanding of why some have left, as well as giving them assurance as to why they will never walk away. And I think it's an important chapter and passage that the church needs to grab hold of today regarding the dangerous threats of Satan through false teachers and the perfect assurance of the believers. We live in a world of uncertainty. I don't need to remind you of that. I mean, we're faced with it every day. And we have the, the short little tiny, it's not even really a, a letter, it's a writing. It wasn't sent to any particular church in general. It was sent to a general area in Asia Minor. It's, to us, it's an ancient letter written long ago. But if I could make a general statement about 1 John, in general, it would be is that God wants us to know, to rejoice in the knowledge of his love for you, which has been displayed vividly in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so we look back to Jesus' time and to our time where there is great uncertainty. And this uncertainty comes to this particular group, body of believers, that they, they were receiving pressure from the outside and pressure from the inside. Now, you know that we'll always have pressure from the outside. Can't get away from that. It's not a popular uh, thing to believe in Christ, and we see it more and more prevailing. But when you have pressure from the outside and then you have discord and pressure from the inside, it makes things very difficult to go on as a church. Some of you have experienced that. 
you know what that inner turmoil can do to a body. And what happens usually is you get so involved in what's going on in the inside of the church, you become totally ineffective outside the church. And it consumes, and it's discouraging. And so we see that um, we do live in an, a world of uncertainty. But the tension was also coming from within. In verse 18 and 19, John says, it's the last hour. He uses this phrase twice. What is John referring to when he says the last hour? I believe it's the time between Christ's first coming and his second coming. John, John's not confused or wrong in his prediction. He's not making a prediction here on when Christ will come back. He's merely explaining why some are departing from Christ. And his explanation as to why they are leaving is that it is the last hour. And I truly believe we're in the final chapter of God's redemptive plan. His explanation as to why they're leaving is that it's the final hour. Unfortunately, we're going to see this more and more as we get closer to the return of Jesus. People will depart from the truth. And his expectation as to why they're leaving is that's the final hour. In other words, this behavior is precisely the kind of behavior we can expect in the time in which we live. Even Jesus told us in the Matthew chapter 24, before the end comes, Jesus said, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. And he went on to say that many false prophets will arise and mislead many. And during the last hour, people are going to depart from Christ. It shouldn't take us by surprise. We should just remind us that we're getting closer. Verse 18 says, If you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Most of you have heard the term Antichrist. There's been many books written about it and some amazing movies, all for something that's mentioned literally five times in the Scriptures by the same person, John. We find the term Antichrist that comes from antichristos in, the, in the, the original language. The term antichrist is widely used by teachers of prophecy in our time. One, antichristos literally means adversary to the Messiah, or one who opposes Christ. In apocalyptic scripture or passages of the Bible, we see various mentions of a figure who will arise and appear at the end times and will be an opponent of God and of Jesus Daniel mentioned it. Jesus talked about it. Paul mentioned it. John in Revelation. That's not really what he's referring to here. Because he mentions it both in the singular and in the plural. So let's take a look at what the Apostle John actually said about the Antichrist. But I want you to know, we're not primarily focusing on this today. I want to focus on a greater issue. The greater issue of learning how we as Christians can remain faithful servants of Jesus in an ever-increasing secularized and in some ways anti-faith culture. I hope you realize that you're living in an anti-faith culture. And that's why there is an attack from the outside. John is referring to a specific historical incident in the heretic, by this heretical, uh, heretical group leaving the body of believers. Verses 21 through 23 read like this. 
I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no, no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, one who denies the Father and the Son. And so we can see here that this group had um, denied the humanity and the divinity of Christ. Pastor Tony did an excellent job two weeks ago on really explaining this. If you want to go deeper with this and you want to understand that even in, in, a, in a greater way, I would encourage you to go back two weeks and listen to that message. It was, it was phenomenal. It was powerful. Jesus is both God and man. We see his humanity and we see his divinity, fully God and fully man. But the amazing thing about Jesus was that he was perfect. He was sinless. So he could do what the first Adam wasn't able to do. That's why he could go to the cross and take our sin upon himself. And this is so important and, and really uh, uh, important in our faith and our belief. This antichrist activity in the church seems to have been false teaching that denied that Jesus was God in the flesh, attacking the divinity of Christ. So we back up to verse 19, and we can see these enemies of the church, they've left the church. So what happened is um, they tried to infiltrate the church from within. John doesn't tell us how it happened, but they left. We don't know if they were thrown out <laughs> or they left on their own. Maybe they decided, well, we can't get through here, so let's, let's move on. All right? But John is writing to reassure these believers that the departure is a healthy one for the, for the Christian community. A church can't live in discord. A church can't live and operate and function in, in, in division. And now these heretics, these opponents, have gone. And they can now, as a church, unite together more in the direction that the Holy Spirit is leading them. He also assures them that the presence of the Holy Spirit will lead and guide them. Verse 20 and 21, verse 20 says, You have been anointed by the Holy One, Jesus. That anointing, that unction, that charisma that comes through Jesus. This is a term that's also been misused in the church. You know, I'm sure you've experienced that. Man, that person is really anointed. And they might be. But be honest with you, I mean, you know, you could be just as anointed as them. You know, because God lives in you. We'll get to that in a minute. Now, in the Old Testament times, pouring oil over the head symbolizes God's uh, empowering of an individual. In the Bible, kings and high priests and occasionally prophets were anointed. We see sacred items that were used in the temple for worship of God were anointed. They were set apart. Anointing is closely related to the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. We see this at the anointed of King David. You know, it's an amazing story in 1 Samuel chapter 16. So God says to the prophet Samuel, how long are you going to mourn Saul? Saul is, Saul is falling away. It's time to anoint a new king. And so the Spirit of the Lord tells Samuel, go to Jesse's house, and I'm going to reveal who the next king's going to be. So he goes there, and Jesse gathers his sons together. Samuel tells him why he's coming. He'll come to anoint the new king of Israel. So he brings his seven sons, Eliab, Benadad. Now, Eliab was kind of interesting because Eliab, the, the scripture, this is how the Bible describes him, okay? He was tall and handsome. 
That sounds like a perfect person, doesn't it? You gotta be, no. And that's why God said, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. So he lines his son up and no, no, no. Seven sons. And God says, none of them. So Samuel says to Jesse, do you have any more? (laughs) Oh, yeah. David's out in the field with the sheep. He wasn't even called to to the revealing, you know? And he says, go and get him. In awe, when Samuel saw him, God said, he's the one. He's the one. We find in, in uh, chapter, uh, verses 12 and 13, it said, The Lord said, Arise and anoint him. He is the one. And then it goes on to say, The Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. From that moment on, David knew the power of God in his life. God knew everything that he was going to do and the mistakes he was going to make, but he saw his heart and knew it was a heart after him. At Jesus' baptism, the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus. And later, the Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the uh, wilderness to be tempted by the enemy. And he defeats the enemy through the word. And then he's directed to go to Nazareth. So he goes to Nazareth and he goes to the temple. And they hand him the scroll. And he opens up the scroll and he opens up to Isaiah 61.1. It says, and this is what Jesus read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one. He's the one one who anoints by the Holy Spirit. He's the one who pours out the Holy Spirit on his people. It's interesting because Jesus said, I have to leave so I can send the Holy Spirit. And I want to remind you that if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. The Holy Spirit resides in you. What we need to learn is how to listen to the voice of the Spirit. That's, that's key. But it's there. It's there. And we need to learn how to be in tune with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. And I think we need to remind ourselves of that sometimes. Because the world that we live in seems to strip away that. And so we don't, we're not as conscious sometimes of that as we should be. And in Jesus' teaching in John chapters 14 through 16, he talks about the Holy Spirit. He's referred to as the comforter, the counselor, the advocate. He's also referred to as the helper or the paraclete. And then it says, as the spirit of truth. The Holy Spirit is the one that brings truth. John 14, 26 says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And John is saying that the presence of the Holy Spirit in a believer's life is the anointing that will alert them to false doctrine of the Antichrist. And this is what was happening at that time. The Holy Spirit ex- exposed the falsehood and points to the truth. And in verses 22 through 23, John reveals uh, the heresy that the Antichrist group had been uh, propagating. And like I said before, this group was denying the humanity and divinity of Christ. They were undermining the very nature of who Jesus was. And like I said, Pastor Tony did an excellent job go back two weeks ago and re-listen to that. I know I did this week, and it really even spoke to me very powerfully. But we see his 
humanity and we see his divinity. Look at the scene at the woman at the well. He comes and he's thirsty. He's physically thirsty. He's been walking in the hot sun. But then he goes on to tell her about the living water that he can give. And she says, well, and I know the Messiah is coming. You know, and he'll reveal all things. And he looks at her and he says, I'm he. I'm the one. Okay? And so we see again in chapter 4, verse 2 of, of 1 John, it says, Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. And in verse 23, it says, Whoever denies his son does not have the Father. But whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. It's an inextricable. I learned a new word this week. <laughs> inextricable connection between Jesus and the Father. What that means is, inextricable is uh, you can't dis distangle it or untie it. They're one. And the Holy Spirit's in that group too. You can't, you can't deny, you can't take apart the Father and take apart the Son. They're so interconnected. All right. So when somebody asks you, "How do you know that?" Just tell them it's intricable. <laughs> and they're going to be like, "What's that mean?" Go look it up. <laughs> but then we come to verse twenty-four, and this is really, this is really what I want to focus on today, because all that is is important and, and you know and we need to be aware of what's going on we need to we need to know that but in verses 24 and 25 we hear the word abide repeated it's a greek word meno which is repeated actually 25 times in the book of first john i got a feeling that john was driving a point home here and it's amazing to me that the last message I shared, this is exactly where we ended up. I was like, and I didn't, you know, this wasn't planned out. And maybe God's talking to me and telling me I need to abide more. And I'll receive that, you know. But it's a beautiful word. It means to live, to, to, to remain, to stay, to abide in. And John is exhorting his readers and us today to adhere to the teachings that they had originally received and not desert it for a progressive gospel. Paul, too, had the urge, uh, urge his followers to reject any different gospel than the one he had originally taught them in 1 uh, Corinthians and also in Galatians. Jesus challenged his disciples to hold to my teachings, John 8, 31. And we find Jesus teaching in John chapter 15. He spoke of remaining in the vine and that he was the true vine. John 15, 4 says, Abide in me, and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit of itself, unless it abide in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. And John encourages the church and us today with verse 25. And this is the promise that was made to us, eternal life. You see, if we abide in Christ, he's the one that guarantees us eternal life. Jesus is the only one that can offer us eternal life. He gives us eternal life. And John concludes this teaching by encouraging his readers to trust the Holy Spirit who is leading and teaching them. Let's look at verses 26 and 27. It says, I write uh, these things to you uh, about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. 
But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has been taught to you, abide in him. So the questions come up this morning. Is the whole, if, if the Holy Spirit teaches us, do we need human teachers? Is John telling us to reject teachers altogether and rely totally on the Spirit? Does the anointing imply that we require no teachers? And I say no to all of those. This interpretation, and I've had people actually come to me and tell me, I don't need anyone to teach me. I'm just going to let the Holy Spirit teach me. But I believe in the interpretation uh, contradicts the fact that John himself is teaching his readers through this writing. In this context, the apostle is uh, specifically warning against false teachers. God has placed in the church teachers whose role is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. We receive from godly teachers and their essential ministry, but I want to add this to it. All right? We can't rely fully on them, all right, to feed us. We need to learn how to feed ourselves. Because if we don't, we're going to starve. John is advising his readers to rely on the anointing from God so that they won't be deceived. This anointing refers to the presence and empowering work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And like I said, when you accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit came to live inside of you. And we just got to learn to listen and learn how to be in tune with what the Spirit's doing in our lives. You ever been in those situations where, you know, like you just remember a passage of Scripture or truth comes to you, and you're like, I wasn't even thinking about that. Or maybe you're reading, and you're reading a passage that maybe you've read numerous times, and all of a sudden, an enlightenment from the Spirit comes, and it just registers and reverberates in your spirit, and you know it's truth. Some biblical teachers can provide us with valuable insight, and the Holy Spirit will confirm, teach, and remind us of these truths. And at the end of verse 27, we see again the phrase, abide in him. To abide in Christ means to live in conscious communion with him. And this will keep us from false teaching. And this will guarantee us eternal life. Verse 28 and 29 said, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from him in shame at his coming. There will come a day when every one of us will come face to face with Jesus. And we don't need to be afraid of that encounter. We don't need to be afraid of that because it reminds us that um, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Any righteousness that resides in you and me has nothing to do with us. I hope you know that today. I can do good things I can be a wonderful person. My wife will tell you how wonderful I am. Well, she'll tell you the truth. <laughs> Sometimes he's wonderful, all right? But the reality is that the only righteousness that I have and you have is through Christ. And the Bible tells us to put on that robe of righteousness, all right? And so 
we can in confidence stand before Christ, not because of what we've done, but because of what he's done. But verse 29 tells us um, that if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness will be born of him. And just in closing this morning, I want to give you a couple of ideas of how do you abide in Christ. How, do we, how does that happen? How do we, how do we uh, abide in him? The phrase abide in Christ pictures an intimate, close relationship and really not a, super, a superficial acquaintance. God doesn't want us to just know about him. He wants us to know him. And you know what? He makes himself known. It's not like he's hiding and playing this game with us, like, see if you can find me, you know? Don't hide and seek with God. He wants us to know him. He wants us to have that close, intimate, personal relationship with him. And I want to give you three quick steps this morning, okay? I said the, uh, the word abide comes from a uh, Greek word named men, uh, meno. It's translated remain, live, dwell, or rest. Abiding in Christ is receiving and believing in him. When we're exposed to the gospel, we have to make a choice on what we're going to do with that. Are we going to receive it? And are we going to believe it? See, there's a difference between receiving it and really believing it. If I had a package wrapped up on stage this morning, beautiful wrapping, nice bow, I mean, it's a very attractive looking package, and it had your name on it, that's for you. And I tell you, that package is for you. Look, it's got your name on it. And you look at that and say, wow, that's a beautiful package. Look at the bow on that. Look at the paper. That's wonderful. And then you turn and walk away. That still belongs to you, but you don't possess it. You don't even know what's in there. You haven't even unwrapped it. You haven't taken possession of it. And so when salvation is offered to us, it's not just that we hear it and that happens. We've got to receive it. And then we've got to believe it. We've got to believe that, that, that what Jesus said is true. All right? And so to abide in him is, is a verb. It's, it, we must choose to accept, believe, and live our lives in him and for him. To abide in Christ is to abide in his love. Jesus said, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. So how do I know if I'm abiding in the love of Christ? Well... What does it look like on a typical Wednesday? Jesus said, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I've kept the Father's commandments and abide in his love. I see in that that obedience is proof of love. To be obedient to what Jesus has told us. And that's how we remain in his love. Third thing is abiding Christ is obeying Abiding in his word and worship. This means spending intentional, focused time in, in the word of God and in his presence. Whether it's by reading the word of God, engaging in prayer, worshiping him, meditating on his word and in his ways. That's how we stay connected to God. Ferguson Clare, who's that? He's a Scottish theologian. I like what he said about abiding. He said, in a nutshell, 
Abiding in Christ means allowing his word to fill our minds, direct our wills, and transform our affections. I want to say that again because that is so powerful. Abiding in Christ means allowing his word to fill our minds, direct our wills, and transform our affections. In other words, our relationship to Christ is uh, intimately connected to what we do with his word. To abide in Christ is to live in a conscious communion with him. And this is what Jesus calls us to. In this passage, this is what was going to keep them from false teaching. And this is what was going to guarantee them eternal life, abiding in Christ. And I think the challenge goes out to you and me today. We need to ask ourselves, am I really abiding in Christ? Am I really abiding in him? Do I have that close, personal, intimate relationship. It's not just for just a few people. God doesn't select people and say, oh, you know, this, that. He calls all of us to himself to abide in him. Pastor Tom read a passage this this morning out of Ephesians chapter 3, and this is a prayer for spiritual strength. And I just, I want to close the message with this because I want to pray this over myself and over you. And this is what it says. For this reason, I bow my knee before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length in height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, and that you may be filled with the fullness of Christ. God, bring us to a place where we abide in you, where we put our trust and our confidence in you, we rely on you. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that leads us into all truth. You've had those situations in your life where maybe somebody said something to you spiritually, and right away you you had a check in your spirit, and you're like, mm-hmm. oh, that's right, you know? We need to be like the Bereans. The Bereans, in the book of Acts, it says that they received the word with gladness, but they went and checked it out daily. We gotta be in God's word. He calls us to abide in him. And so I want to challenge you, and I'm challenging myself this morning of looking at other ways that we can closely and more closely abide in him and be filled with his spirit. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your word today that guides and directs us into all truth. I thank you, Lord, that you call us to abide in you. It's not to take things lightly. It's not to be flipping about our relationship with you. But God, that we would be closely connected, intimate. Lord, that we would know you, because God, you want to be known. You want to reveal yourself to us. And I pray that more and more that as we abide in you, God, we would realize the anointing of the Spirit in our lives. And God, we thank you in advance this morning for eternal life, the guarantee that only you can offer. I thank you, Lord. Help us to abide. In Jesus' name, amen, amen.